My name is Evan White, and you're listening to the Stories on Stage Davis podcast. Well, it's been exactly a year since the very first episode of our podcast aired. Our last live event was in February of 2020, just before the COVID pandemic took hold of the nation and the world. More than a year on, what a relief it is to see things beginning to move back to normal again. This is our 25th episode of the podcast and the end of our event's eighth season. In this week's episode, we're welcoming back actor Ian Hops, who has read for our series numerous times. He will be reading After the Storm by Gwendolyn Paradise, whose first collection of short stories, more enduring for having been broken, was published earlier this year. Paradise's essays, short stories, and poetry can be found in Tin House, Uncanny, Booth, Anomaly, Crab Orchard Review, and others. Stay tuned after the reading to hear Gwendolyn Paradise on the inspiration behind her story. But first, here's Ian Hopps reading After the Storm. This is After the Storm by Gwendolyn Paradise. The newspaper article said two people died, not three. And that's because three people did not die, at least not in that car at that time. But the article didn't even mention the boy. The article should have said that Alice and Charles were survived by their preteen son, and that the boy now lived up a ladder in the cramped space inside the oversized stingray looming above the gift shop across from the ocean. But, of course, it didn't say this, because almost no one knew the boy existed. There was no record of him in hospital documents, no social security card or birth certificate. His mother urged him out of her womb in an Arkansas hot spring, and his father cut the umbilical cord with a butterfly knife sterilized by a Zippo's blue flame. And they called the boy Elias, and took him all over the country until their van slipped into the ocean. Elias wondered how hot it would get inside the stingray once Florida was in full summer. He already sweat during the day, felt like he was slowly being cooked inside an easy-bake oven he'd once seen advertised on a motel television. But he'd stolen enough beach blankets to line the metal-bellied floor, and because the stingray hung over the edge of the gift shop's roof, it was too high for anyone to see its hatch propped open with a disembodied cooler lid. From the inside, he looked out the stingray's window eyes and saw the store owner's daughter kissing the blonde surfer boy in the dawn light. The two had spent the night together under lifeguard Tower 17, and she'd silenced her phone every time it quacked like a duck. Her hands were pulling at the surfer boy's hair, and he had her pinned against the stucco wall. Elias thought it must be nice to be needed, instead of needing. When Amanda pushed her boyfriend away, the two teenagers stood like gasping fools, and then she took keys from her pocket to unlock the back door of the souvenir shop. Elias watched the boy walk down the street and kick a stray can before getting into his van. He crawled out of the hatch and then down the rickety ladder. He knocked on the door five times and wrapped his arms around himself to wait. Eventually, Amanda opened it. Hey, Elias! She leaned against the frame and he could see oblong darknesses under her eyes. They looked like muscle shells. Hey. He stood for a moment, then said, Do you have any water? 
He entered the store behind her. The morning was filtering in through the tinted windows, and he followed her to the drink cooler where she pulled a bottle out and tossed it to him. His hands slipped on the condensation and it fell, rolling under a rack of badly manufactured t-shirts with two wide shoulders, finally coming to a stop below a display of stuffed sea creatures. They were piled atop each other near the front door, and Elias could see that they were sun-bleached. Killer whales, dolphins, sea turtles, sharks, all faded and dusty. You been doing okay? Amanda looked him over and then went to flick on the overhead lights. Elias squinted against the brightness. Yeah, sure. While her back was turned, he shoved a caramel candy bar into his pocket. God, sometimes I just wish, she said. You got it so good. No one telling you what to do or how to act. No stupid school. Who needs school, you know? It was Amanda's dream to leave Florida for L.A., she was destined not to be an actress, but a celebrity psychic, and she knew she didn't need high school or college or her father in order to be that. I'm so tired of this place, she continued. Look at this stupid junk. Elias did look, but he didn't see junk. The souvenir store, though much larger, reminded him of home. The back of the VW van was always crammed with things, tchotchkes, his mother called them something from every place where they spent any significant amount of time. A laminated paper coaster from a diner where his father was a short-order cook, a souvenir pen in the shape of the Washington Monument, a needlework pillowcase of the Liberty Bell. He fingered a whole opened clamshell and tipped it so the googly eyes rolled to the side. His thumbnail caught on a lump of dried glue. Eh, it could be worse. Yeah? How? She opened the register to fiddle with the receipt tape. You could be in a van at the bottom of the ocean. Whoa, Elias! Amanda lapsed into a fit of laughter. When she looked at him again, her cheeks were red splotches. What a thing to say! Yeah, okay, I guess it could be worse. Outside, a few people were beginning to appear on the street. What are you going to do today? She asked. Be a king of a sandcastle? Train seals to pull your chariot across the ocean? This was Elias' favorite part of the day. Monday through Saturday, the two would each proclaim what grand action was going to be performed. The seagulls are naming a new emperor, he told her. I bet it's going to be me, and I've got great ideas about how to fix litter on the beach and ways to make French fries less salty. I'll live in a mansion overlooking the sea, and every day... They'll bring me ice cream and magazines. You? Amanda's eyes got dull the way they did when she imagined her life outside of the small town. Have you ever heard of Selkies? She asked, and Elias shook his head no. They're seals that are really people. The seal skin is just like a second skin, but they can take it off and step out of it and look like normal. That's pretty cool. Today, I'm going to be a selkie. She fingered her hair and narrowed her eyes. Today, I'm going to take off my skin. The statement made Elias shiver. So you're going to be a seal? He asked. Not a seal, just something else. Elias thought she either didn't want to complete the thought or couldn't. 
Hey, if you clean the windows, I'll give you three dollars, she said, shifting the conversation. Okay. Elias thought of the ice cream store and its 42 flavors. He wondered how much ice cream cost. She told him he had 20 minutes and gave him a spray bottle and a dirty rag, stiff in the middle with long-dried cleaning solution. He only got half of the windows done. He was too short to clear the tops. And because he'd never cleaned a window before in his life, he left broad streaks of Windex arcing across the glass. Amanda gave him five dollars from the drawer and let him pick a knick-knack from the store. He picked a red baseball hat from the discount bin. It was only a little bit too big. A waffle cone with one scoop costs $2.13. Elias sat under a canopied picnic bench near the beach, and the funky monkey banana pecan and caramel ice cream dripped out the bottom of the cone and ants collected at his feet. He had $2.87 left, and he knew later he'd buy a hot dog from the guy who pushed a cart down the sidewalk near the temporary carnival. It was only $2. He felt good for the first time in days. He heard a couple talking about the hurricane. The sea didn't look any different to Elias, though. Somewhere out there, his parents had drowned, and he licked his fingers while he thought about it. He told himself they must have been sleeping, and then he invented a story about mermaids who tried to rescue them, diving down with conch shells full of air and pulling open the van's doors. If the last thing they saw were mermaids, it probably didn't hurt when they died. From where he sat, he could see the protected section of the beach. Part of the sands were roped off, and signs hung that read, Do not enter, and, Caution, Protected Sand Crabs. Someone came by and dumped what was left of their cooler into the trash, and Elias pretended to pull something out of his pocket as if to throw that away too. Then he pretended to change his mind, shaking his head as he reached into the trash, his fingers quickly finding half a turkey and cheddar sandwich, which he ate as he climbed down the dunes to the beach to watch as the crabs worked tiny wonders with their claws. Amanda told him that once a year the crabs migrated here, they threw themselves into currents and pinched dark waters all the way along the coast until they came to Florida, where they fought their way onto the beach and began the process of building elaborate sand castles in which to birth their young. He knew a little about crabs. The town library was small, but with years of traveling and limited space in the van, his mother had taught him how to navigate a card catalog, and he could find, with no help, almost anything he wanted. The crabs on the beach were technically called plotter crabs. They were a protected species and dwindling fast. The town didn't advise their presence much because of this. Elias had read that in 1993, some college kids on spring break got drunk and stomped down the half-built crab castles and almost wiped them out. He knew the baby crabs attached to the underside of the mother crab and that they looked like eggs but weren't. While most crabs release their little ones into the ocean, these crabs raised them in their sandcastles for a few weeks until the babies could fend for themselves. Each female had her own castle, built for her in a collaborative effort of the male crabs vying for her post-mating affections. The male crabs combined architectural styles with reckless abandon, and an observer might witness what looked to be a basic English medieval castle, square with full crenellated walls combined with spiraled towers and bay windows. Or Japanese shiro, 
with sweeping roofs and a French portcullis. Some castles had no recognizable attributes governed by any period or place, castles made of half-formed fairy tales with rectangular windows at odd intervals and flat roofs with geometric designs. The female crabs mainly came out at night, and in the moonlight when he wandered the beach, Elias had been able to see them appraising their homes, giving indistinct orders with waving claws and sending their wishful husbands to work but he'd stopped coming down to see them since he saw one pair of crabs mating, stuck together, and when he returned the next day, found them both dead in the sand, their castle collapsed into two halves. A few cars pulled up and men began unloading equipment Elias didn't recognize. He grew bored when the male crabs scuttled away into the shelter of their castles, so he wandered the beach looking for sea glass. One thing he used to have, that was his and his alone, was a mayonnaise jar with the label washed off, full of rounded and dull glass of all colors. His mother wrote their locations with a thin point permanent marker on the bits and pieces, and he made a game with them. Somewhat like solitaire, but instead of suits, he judged the pairings with colors and shapes. He'd been looking for sea glass when his parents sent him away, they did this often, with the important mission of finding the answer to a riddle. What kind of tree fits in your hand? Elias didn't know much about trees. Cactus, yes, and flowers, but he figured he didn't have to know about trees to see what was small enough to be carried back to the van. The night his parents disappeared was also the first night he saw Amanda. She was with the tall boy lounging near the entrance to a traveling carnival. She was unwinding purple cotton candy with her mouth, and her eyeliner was so thick she looked like a raccoon. Elias liked the look of her. She seemed undone somehow, or unconcerned. Her bones didn't fight her posture, and her eyes moved slowly. He wondered what it would be like to become a wave. He walked behind her and her boyfriend on his way back to the van. He saw them stop in front of the souvenir store and looked past them to the families doing their last shopping. A giant inflatable palm tree was being batted by a child who looked to be having a fit and Amanda made a comment about how she was never going to have kids because they couldn't behave, not even in her store. Right after she went inside, Elias figured out the answer to the riddle. A palm tree. That's the kind of tree that fits in your hand. He laughed when it struck him, and he skipped down the streets all the way to the beach where the van was parked on the sand. Only there was no van. He knew where it had been left, there was an indentation in the dune behind it that looked like a giant footprint, but the sand that had been dry and loose hours before was now compact and wet with the outgoing tide. That night the windows of the souvenir shop glowed with blue and white lava lamps and night lights decorated with seashells. He didn't know who he might ask for help and was scared of what might happen to him without his parents. The stingray awning above the front door had eyes that glowed too, and he could see the small space inside, metal beams studded with thick-ended screws. The rooftop access was easy to find, a ladder screwed to the side of the building in the back, and so he climbed up and found a small trap door under the stingray's stubby tail. He unlatched it, and it swung down. It almost hit him on the head. The room inside was small, but he could crawl a few body lengths. In the middle... He sat down and waited a few minutes, then got up 
and found the light switch. Finally curling on the floor and using his arms as a makeshift pillow, he fell asleep. He was beginning to amass a secondary store up in the Stingray. Amanda didn't care too much about her job, and in the morning she'd let Elias take whatever he wanted, as long as he didn't cart off noticeable armloads of merchandise. Tell me what it's like to be a hobo, she commanded of him this morning. The way she said hobo sounded like she might have said unicorn or rich. She'd wrapped him up in a neat little package with a sparkling bow. To have a freedom like his meant life had promises yet unfulfilled. It's nothing special, he replied. He'd narrowed down his choice of shirt to a white one with a picture of a great white shark swimming in a badly watercolored ocean and a tan shirt that said, Just wave, and showed a whale on a surfboard, balancing on the split end of his tail like it was legs. Actually, it's kind of hard. What's hard is spending your summer working in your dad's stupid store. Elias thought stupid was a word for people younger than them, but didn't say anything. Can't wait to get out of here, she added. You could take the money in the cash register and run, he suggested. And the moment that idea escaped his mouth, he regretted it. The store grew very quiet, and then Amanda laughed. Yeah, right. And then she switched gears, saying, Get the whale shirt. The shark one has a janky collar. Well, all of them do, but the whale shirt? Not so bad. Elias' stomach rumbled audibly, and he tried to cover up the sound by coughing. How do you eat? she asked, leaning over the counter and sizing up his small body. I mean, I know how you eat, but what do you eat? Stuff, he said softly. People leave stuff around. Aren't you worried about being arrested? He was, but he didn't want to admit it. His parents had picked a good town for vagrancy. The police didn't patrol much at night, and even then they rarely got out of their cars, just drove down the streets and beach at low tide, swinging the spotlight rather carelessly. Not really, he said instead, and then in an effort to impress her, I know how to get around alone. Why'd you run away, anyway? He hadn't told her he'd run away. I didn't like my parents. It hurt him to say this. It felt like he'd swallowed a tortilla chip the wrong way and it poked and scratched his throat. He folded the whale shirt slowly and clutched it to his chest. Lucky, she said. I wish I were that brave. I bet it's not so easy to survive in L.A. either. Lots of people go there to get famous. Elias felt like he might cry and needed to get out of the store. Isn't it time for you to open? Yeah, yeah. She came out from behind the counter and flipped the sign at the front door. Water? Elias took the bottle without saying thanks and heard the door chime on his way out. Hurricane became a word that flavored everyone's sentences. No man was going to hit the east coast of Florida. Within a few days, the families with their plump children and the skinny beer-drinking college kids fled and left the locals to prepare. Elias was not so concerned for himself. He knew if he needed her to, Amanda would let him bunk down with her family. But he did find himself getting more worried about the crabs. 
He watched from a bench on the sidewalk above the beach as a team of researchers from some university stalked around the perimeter of the sandcastle safety zone. They had clipboards in their hands and wore dark sunglasses and capes or visors. Elias stuck his hands in the pockets of the swimsuit he now wore as shorts and shuffled down the beach towards them. He saw that one of the castles had collapsed on its side and the moat was filling with sand. A crab blended in so well with the landscape that at first he didn't see it. Then its whitish belly resolved into shape and he knew it was dead on its back. Hey, he said softly to a dark bearded man in sandals. What's going to happen to them? The man bent at the knees to inspect the dead crab and spoke to Elias like he was a child. Hello, son. You worried about them? Elias shook his head. Don't, the man said. His smile was full of impossibly white teeth. They looked buried in his facial hair. We're moving them today. They'll be okay. Elias wanted to ask more questions, but the man stood up and yelled for someone else. A flash of a pincher appeared in the opening of a turret. Elias had seen people shaking their fists to the skies in old movies when they were angry. The motion reminded him of that. There were pickup trucks parked on the street in the fire lane, their beds full of wood and plastic. Men and women nailed particle board over their windows. Elias slipped into the ice cream store where the manager stood with his teenage employees, watching a flat-screen TV. The newscaster said no man was expected to make landfall that night, and listed the names of towns that were evacuating. Elias didn't understand where they were on the coastal maps streaked with red and orange, but the store owner said, Phew! If you were any more north, you all wouldn't have jobs to come back to. The employees didn't look overly delighted. When Elias exited into the graying day, businesses were already closing, and cars were lining up to get through the ill-planned stoplight at the boulevard's major intersection. By the time he made it to the souvenir store, it too had closed. He cupped his hands against the window and breathed heavily onto the glass, but no one was inside. His hands were on the ladder of the stingray when he remembered the fallen castle. What if, by some chance, there was a crab inside? Maybe the male had just died, and the female was scared and alone with her young clutch to her belly, hiding in the broken rooms and waiting for a prince to come. Would it be worth it, he wondered, to check? He climbed down onto the roof of the store, looking out over the awning across the street towards the beach. No beach umbrellas, snack carts, no towels, no beach balls, no bodies. The waves crested white closer to the sand, but in the distance where the water met dark sky, there was nothing but unremarkable expanse. He wanted to go, to find out if the crabs had been removed how they had been removed, how their castles had been preserved and taken to safety, if indeed that's what happened. But the sky began to drop water on him, and the wind plucked at his shorts, and Elias had never weathered a hurricane before. Good sense prevailed, and it sent him up the ladder and into the stingray. He left the light on. No one was in the streets to see him. The bulb above him flickered periodically and finally went out for good. The streetlights outside failed too, trapping him in the musty darkness. He thought he heard his mother's voice, and his father's, not words, but the tones of their calling. 
He imagined they weren't his parents at all, but sirens singing him to death. They were never his parents, these two who slipped in and out of scales. He shouldn't have told Amanda he'd never heard of Selkies. He should have told her, yes, he had, but that Selkies were just creatures created in the minds of sirens seeking to throw humans off the correct path. He should have told her that he's figured it all out, that his parents had figured it out too. Sirens cannot take care of human children, no matter how much they might want to. He hunkered down and buried his head between his knees, while the stingray groaned. He sweated inside the metal frame, and the towels under him grew damp. He tried to eat powdered donuts, but his hands shook and his fingers crushed them into soft pieces that were lost in the darkness. It sounded like he was in a tin can being pelted by nails. The sharpness pierced his ears and made the place behind his eyes hurt. When it grew quiet, Elias' body was tired. He told himself he should have looked up hurricanes at the library. The hatch under the stingray's tail swung open, revealing that water had pooled on the flat roof. It collected in puddles, and for once Elias was glad he had no socks. They would have been soaked. Outside it looked like someone had opened the largest bag of trash in the world and dumped it everywhere. Elias couldn't even identify what the trash was, just that there were bits of things on the sidewalks and the boards nailed over windows were splintered and glass was going to crunch underfoot and a lamppost had fallen through the window of the ice cream store and mud was splattered on doors and cement and the sludge made the gray look brown. Business owners and people who hadn't left town were rolling slowly down streets and assessing the damage. Amanda did not return. Elias waited for her to come to the store, but hid when her father appeared to unlock and open it. When the police appeared a little while later, the radios crackling and Amanda's father pointing inside, Elias took off. He put his head down and slapped his flip-flops along the sidewalk and to the beach. There were some people out, picking up what the storm had brought ashore. A man in Bermuda shorts waved around a metal detector, and a loose dog jumped into the surf. One of the lifeguard towers had fallen over, and a beach patrol 4x4 circled it, parked, and the man driving it got off and stared at it with his hands on his hips. Elias did his best to find the spot where the crab should have been, but of course the sandcastles were gone. The beach was wiped clean of signs and posters and dotted with dead fish and man-o'-wars. He stepped on one of the creatures on accident, his foot slipping on its smooth head, and took a tumble into the sand. His stomach rumbled, but there was no food and no Amanda. So Elias went to the only other place he could think of, the library. He tried to act smooth, like he was just some vacation kid, and came in, nodding to the woman at the front desk. The place was virtually empty. He went to the bathroom and quickly bathed in the sink, drying himself off with paper towels. He passed the librarian's office on his way back towards the stacks and saw a tray with a few forlorn pastries, but he steered himself away from them. Elias ended up in a beanbag chair in the children's balcony where he had a good view of the large clock in the lobby and he passed as much time as he could reading some book about what every fifth grader should know. He had not known about all the different types of clouds, or the reversal of seasons on either side of the equator. He had not known about linking verbs, 
though he saw from the examples that he used them often, and he had not known about personification, but his mother had used it often, explaining everything had a soul, even rocks and sea glass. He had known about glaciers and Columbus and decimal places, which made him feel a bit better about himself. But still, there was so much he would need to understand if he was going to be on his own. At a quarter to five, the woman at the front desk disappeared into the office. Elias came down from the balcony and took off his sandals, holding them in one hand, and took the book in the other. There was a thick stack of newspapers on the counter near the scanning checkout machine. A photo collage in black and white showed the damage to the ice cream store, a palm tree buried in someone's roof, and a van partially buried in sand on the beach. Elias paused to look at the picture, but then he heard a toilet flush and took off through the door, the alarm beeping behind him because of the stolen book. Elias had put his book aside and was scrounging for donut crumbs, careful to keep his body low so he couldn't be seen through the stingray's eyes, when there was a knock at the hatch. Before he could move, take a breath even, the hatch swung down and Amanda's head stuck up through the opening. The relief he felt might have been as great as seeing his parents appear, and before she could climb up into his small space, he began crying and lunged at her, catching the girl below her breasts and heaving massive sobs into her chest. Elias, Elias, look, it's okay. I'm okay. She didn't push him away, but stood standing with half her body inside the stingray, raising her arms to stroke his dirty hair. For only a moment he thought that he wasn't glad she was alive, he was glad he wasn't alone. Then he heard another voice. Is he all right? Elias pulled himself away and wiped his eyes with his hands. Amanda crawled in and then her boyfriend's head appeared. Hey, little man, he said, pulling himself in and hunkering in the stingray. It was a tight fit with the three of them inside. Elias couldn't say anything or else he knew he'd start crying again. Amanda leaned forward and hugged him, and she smelled like coconuts and suntan oil. We're going, she whispered in his ear. He held on tighter and hid his face in her armpit. Don't leave me, he said, and she rubbed his back. We won't, we won't. Come on, come out of here. The boyfriend went down the ladder first, and when Elias' legs wouldn't hold his own weight, the boyfriend climbed back up and told Elias to hang on around his neck. He put his hands out and Elias looked at the ground and took it. Inside the souvenir store, a thin layer of mud coated the floor. Most of it was dry, but Amanda's feet slipped on a wet spot hidden in the darkness behind the counter and she swore. There's nothing here, she said, and slammed the tiller shut. Isn't there a safe? The boyfriend suggested. She disappeared through a door into the back, leaving Elias and the boyfriend alone. You want anything in here? He asked. Like a uh, keepsake or something? Elias found himself unwilling to let go of the boyfriend's hand. He knew they'd be driving a long way, but he also knew how to make use of space. He led the boyfriend to the front of the store where he pointed to the inflatable palm tree. That's a good idea, the boyfriend agreed. Take a bit of home with us? He grabbed the tree and put it under his arm. You can squeeze the air out, Elias told him. Nah, I think it's better like this. 
The boyfriend helped Elias pack a beach bag with t-shirts and swim trunks and a sweatshirt. On top, he put a travel kit kept for tourists who forgot necessary items, toothbrush, mini toothpaste, comb, band-aids, deodorant. Elias saw their reflection in the mirrors of the makeshift dressing room. If he squinted, it looked like he was shopping with his father. Amanda returned with a leather envelope. She held it up and waved it over her head. In front of the store, the boyfriend loaded Elias' bag and palm tree into the back of his van. Hurry up, Chad, Amanda said, drumming her fingers on the door. Okay, little man, pile in. Elias climbed into the back and leaned his head against the palm tree. They drove through town, and he looked out the window at bungalow houses with plastic flamingos and wind chimes hanging from porches. His last thought before they got on the highway was of the crabs. If they were alive in plastic containers, if their castles stood intact, if the babies would let go of their mothers and find their way to the ocean, if there were any left at all. I'm Gwendolyn Paradise, and you just heard my short story, After the Storm, from my collection titled More Enduring for Having Been Broken. All the stories in this book are concerned with children who find themselves navigating the world without much guidance, but After the Storm holds a special place in the world of my creativity because of its link to my real life. Growing up in North Texas, the Gulf of Mexico seemed like a magical place. In the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the coast wasn't readily accessible, but the ocean, as a setting, was the backdrop for many narratives I read in movies and TV shows I watched. As a preteen, when I was finally able to go to Corpus Christi and Padre Island with some friends and their mother, we traveled ahead of an incoming storm. The morning after the storm rolled through, I went to the beach by myself. Looking at that smooth, calm expanse of water and comparing it to the beach that showed the aftermath of rough weather, I was struck by that dichotomy of my inner self. An odd fulfillment that I've learned through life only occurs when I'm on expansive bodies of water and the understanding, too, that the enormity of nature can have a kind of terrible authority over our lives. That time on the beach when I was alone was a period in which, for the first time in my life and as a child, I considered what it might be like to see the world and nature as an entity more powerful than I could actually conceptualize. But still, even with the globs of tar on the sand, the remnants of aquatic life, the jellyfish with their rainbow-hued bodies washed up and perished, there was movement. Tiny crabs scuttling to and fro, seemingly unconcerned with me as their audience. I watched them for a long time, personifying the crabs into stories now forgotten. But the experience of that imaginative moment stayed with me, one of the first true moments of inspiration I can remember having as a storyteller. And I'm grateful for Stories on Stage Davis for allowing me to share the narrative and my motivation for writing it. You've just heard After the Storm by Gwendolyn Paradise, read by Ian Hobbs. 
to all of you who have been listening to our podcast from the start. I want to thank you from those of us behind the scenes. Your continued presence, even virtually, has meant the world to each and every one of us. We're working on plans to return to a live format, and we'll announce those to our mailing list when they are finalized. In the meantime, I want to wish you all a very happy and very safe summer. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast is a sponsored project of YOLO Arts, a nonprofit arts organization, and supported in part by a grant from the City of Davis Arts and Cultural Affairs Program. Find our library of past episodes and help support our series at storiesonstagedavis.com.